I hope everyone had a good Christmas. I know I did. I'm reaching that age of adulthood where I am more excited about my children getting toys than anything else. I'm living vicariously through them. I, uh, I give him, my son Lego because I get to build it. So that's the trick. He's excited by the box, and I'm excited for the project. He's like, can I just go get some cheese? I'm like, yeah, no problem. This Death Star will be done when you get back. No problem. That's not true. Because the Death Star is $200. Instead, it was a little car. But we had a great Christmas. I know another reason why I'm getting older is I'm more excited for the Christmas food than I am for the gift giving. I'm like, I can throw gravy on everything. I can throw powdered sugar on everything. Everything, it's like the calories don't count. That's actually one of the miracles of Christmas. There's the incarnation and then the casting out of the calories. They might count. It just doesn't matter. I just really don't care. I'm like, this is the week of sweet, glorious eating. And I loved it. I felt like Garfield the cat. So today we're going to talk about uh, Luke chapter 2. It's the story of Jesus uh, getting lost in the temple. Many of you have heard it before. When I was five, my dad lost me in the grocery store. And it's amazing how easy it is to get lost in a grocery store. Did you know that they designed grocery stores so that you will get lost in them? They, I'm, I'm serious. They purposefully put the windows up high so that you have no sense of time or direction. And they, they cover everything in this blanketed, even fluorescent light. And they purposefully, have you ever noticed that when you're in the grocery store, the thing you're looking for and the other thing you're looking for that you would think would complement each other are in different aisles. That's also on purpose. The point is that you have to move and keep moving and zigzag and go back around. And you never think to yourself, oh, I'm going to buy this and that. But they always put the produce on the one side so that you pass through and you go, wow, those look really good. I'm going to pick up some of this and some of that. And if you're my dad, you come home with 20 bags, no matter what you were sent for. Sometimes 20 bags of groceries and not the thing you were sent for. (laughs) And so we were in the grocery store, my dad and I, and he went in one direction and I went in another direction and we could have been continents apart and he was freaking out and I have vague recollections of the story so I can't say that I was you know I can't I can't put myself in my four-year-old shoes but I'm sure I was scared as well and then a strange man came up to me and he said you must be Kendall Schramm's son because you look just like him. He hadn't seen my dad since Bible college? Oh, since he was a boy. This man hadn't seen my dad since he was a boy, but he saw me in the grocery store and made this incredible leap to realize that I was my father's son. And I think he helped us get reunited, and I think you guys were able to connect. This is a very interesting story because there are a number of other extra-biblical accounts of Jesus' time as a young person. Like he makes clay figures come to life and he raises a bird from the dead. And the Gnostics would just throw everything at the wall and see if it sticks, right? They just took the, they took our Christian faith and within one generation they were like, let's just make stuff up. And so 
like in one of the gospels, the cross talks and a bunch of weird stuff. But anyway, the only, the only surviving story from Jesus's adolescence that we have in our Protestant Bible is the story of Jesus and his family going to the temple when Jesus is 12. And they go to the temple to give sacrifices and they go home and they've forgotten the most important person in the universe. Like objectively the most important person. Like everybody thinks their kid is the most important person in the universe. But in this case, they were right. They lost the son of God. I thought he was with you. Wait, no, he was with you. Oh no. There's no cell phone. There's no find my friend. There's nothing. There's just a missing kid and he is a day and a half away. Like this wasn't like, oh, we lost him for 15 minutes. The end of the grocery aisle. This is like the other side of the country pretty much. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning... After spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and they went on a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. This is an interesting story at this season. Many people, because of our Greco-Roman calendar, many people are thinking about the year behind us and the year ahead. Some people make New Year's resolutions. Some people say they don't make New Year's resolutions, but in the back of their mind, they're going, I'd really like to lose five pounds and run a marathon and write a book or whatever. Um, And we all think to ourselves about where we've been and where we're going. It just seems to be the nature of this weird kind of middle season where everyone's sort of getting back on track, but also still recovering from like six different Christmas things that you had to do. And I think it's really a suitable thing for us to look at Jesus's life as a prototype for our life, because I think what happens in this story is very interesting. Jesus and his family follow a road to Jerusalem to follow the customs of the Jewish people to give sacrifices at the temple. And then his parents follow a road away back home, but he stays. And then they come and they find him. And they take a road back home. And I relate very strongly to this story for a number of reasons. But I think on one level of reading the text, we can just read this as an affirmation of Jesus' divinity. He knew who his father was. He knew that the temple was his father's house. And it also shows that Jesus is this prodigy, right? All these religious leaders gather around Jesus and they're asking him questions and he's giving them answers and they're blown away by who he is. So on one level, the text just shows us, wow, Jesus the kid is pretty awesome. He's that kid that all the other kids are like, there goes Jesus again. But I think on another level, we see Jesus affirm certain values and make certain choices that become significant for the entirety of his life. And I think there's more happening in this story than we see at first glance. A poem that's so overdone, it's a cliche to everyone, still feels real to me, which is a poem by Robert Frost. 
Has anyone heard this poem? Two roads diverged in a wood. I took the road less traveled and it has made all the difference. I think about that sometimes because I think that in life, we make a series of choices whether we know it or not and we end up with a certain life and we follow a certain path. And sometimes we go through life automatically and we just do what comes natural to us and one day becomes another day and one week becomes another week. And we actually aren't aware of the choices we're making. And then sometimes we know that we've come to a significant moment where it's like there are two paths and we have a choice to make. And maybe we don't know how permanent the choice is in the end, but we know that it's significant here and now and we know that it will affect the rest of our lives. Like for example, one time I was in this room back here before it was a storage closet and I was lying on the floor hyperventilating because I was about to propose to my now wife, Leisha. And I stayed up pretty much the whole night before I did propose, <laughs> feeling nervous. And it wasn't that I wasn't sure about her, just to be clear. She's not here, so I can say whatever I want, right? You guys won't tell? No, it wasn't that I was insecure about my choice. It was simply that I knew the choice was a monumental choice. And sometimes in life, we know that we're about to make monumental choices. I would like to suggest to you that the choice Jesus makes in this passage is a monumental choice. It actually distinguishes his life from all other lives. And I think he reveals a value that many of us have, but don't have language for. And then maybe some of us don't have the same value. And it would really help us. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of his teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Wisdom is revealed by the questions you ask, and understanding is revealed by your answers. Wisdom is revealed by the questions you ask, and your understanding is revealed by your answers. One of the things I have always struggled with growing up is I had an answer for everything. I was that, that little kid Pharisee going around hitting other kids with my Bible. And I have learned over the years, sometimes unsuccessfully, sometimes with great pain, I have learned that it's far more valuable in life to ask good questions than it is to give good answers. It's interesting that they see Jesus' wisdom in the questions that he asks. Because later, his whole life will be marked by amazing questions. Most of the time when they try to trap him, his great comeback, his brilliant answer, is actually just another question. Like, Hey, should we stone this woman we caught in adultery? He says, whoever has not sinned, you may cast the first stone. Who's the person? Who's the person here who hasn't sinned? When they say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He says, whose picture is on the coin? See, the wisdom of Jesus, Jesus is wisdom personified, 
The wisdom of Jesus is revealed in his way of asking questions that reveal another reality. Sometimes people don't see the road less traveled because they don't know how to ask the right questions. They get caught in an automatic way of doing life. They see the same problems again and again, and they keep doing the same thing they've always done, and they get what they've already got, and they don't realize that a new question might lead to a new answer. So Jesus ends up on a very different path from his parents who are ready to leave, right? They're following the customs and his path diverges from theirs a little bit because he's caught up asking great questions. And they're astonished by his answers. Your understanding is revealed by the way you answer the questions of life. One of the names for the Holy Spirit is the spirit of understanding. And I have found that One of the most valuable prayers I pray the most often is, Lord, give me a spirit of understanding. Many people listen, but many people do not listen until they understand. There's a difference between hearing something and understanding it. If you're in a conflict with someone, here's a great way of practicing this. If you're in a conflict with someone and they're telling you how they feel or what's wrong or what they're upset about, try just repeating back to them what they said to you. They will tell you whether or not you understand. Like I've been in conflicts with my spouse and she says, this is what's going on and this is how I feel. And I go, so what you're saying is I'm a jerk. And what you're saying is, I'm not a good husband. She's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm like, well, I understand you very clearly. (laughs) But I don't. I think I do. I've offered a version of reality. But the spirit of understanding brings me deeper than my own way of seeing. Brings me beyond my lenses to what's actually going on. So when Jesus answers their questions, it's not like, Hey, Jesus, what's two plus two? Four. And everyone's like, what? These aren't just factual questions. Hey, Jesus, what does Leviticus 18 say? It's not that kind of question. It's that Jesus' awareness of reality, the way he answers the question, reveals that he understands things at a level they didn't expect. And maybe at a level they didn't understand themselves. So having an appetite for an increase in wisdom, which starts by asking better questions, and understanding, which means seeking to know what reality is like so that you can give better answers. Wisdom and understanding will guide your life better than pretty much anything else. I really can't think of a better thing to ask for. When I was a kid, I read the story of Solomon. And Solomon has a dream where God speaks to him and says, Solomon, because of of your family's faithfulness, I will give you anything you ask. And Solomon goes, I ask for wisdom and an understanding heart that I might lead your people. And God goes, because you've answered correctly, I'm not only going to give you wisdom and understanding, I am going to give you everything else. And so as a good little Pharisee, I said, whenever I get the chance, I'm going to ask for wisdom. Because that's how you get everything else too. It's kind of like asking the genie for a million wishes. You get everything else when you've asked for the thing you maybe didn't want in the first place, but it's the right thing to ask for in that circumstance, right? But as I've grown up and as I've matured, I've realized that wisdom and understanding really do unlock the mysteries of life. 
Many people are trying to improve themselves. They're trying to grow. Uh, maybe they're trying to become more patient or maybe they have certain goals for the year ahead. Maybe they want to learn a second language. Maybe they're trying to work on their temper. Maybe they're trying to improve their relationships. But I'm letting you know that everything rises and falls on what kind of wisdom and understanding you carry. If you seek wisdom and understanding, the rest of your life and all of your pursuits will become more fruitful. Just a free one. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. Verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So Jesus is lost, and like any parent would, his mother, based out of her anxiety, kind of criticizes his choices, says, hey, didn't you realize that we weren't with you, and why are you here, and didn't you realize that we were looking for you? And Jesus is, is genuinely surprised, and he says, did you not realize that I would be in my father's house, or, or in my father's purpose? Which is really amazing, for a 12-year-old to just commit blasphemy like that. <laughs> to just call God his father just casually in conversation. Here's the amazing thing to me about this story. The, the amazing thing to me about this story, it's all right. I love it. It's totally fine. The amazing thing to me about this story is that they lose Jesus, but Jesus is never lost. Jesus knows where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be in the temple, in his father's house, and in his father's purpose. Whether he became aware of it from birth forward until then, or whether it was some sort of divine special knowledge that he always had, which is unlikely. At this point in the story, 12 years old, Jesus knows God is my father. And because God is his father, Jesus wants to be in his father's house. I think for, for parents, at least for me as a parent, one of my goals for my children is that I would not just keep them safe and provide for them and set them up for a great life, but one of my goals is that they would come to know the Lord for themselves and that they would have a genuine relationship with him and that they would want to continue to walk with him. Because I've seen the benefits of that and I've seen, the, I've seen the dangers or the destructiveness that comes from abandoning that. And I, I don't mean that in the cliche way. There are many people who don't consider themselves Christians and have a fine life. I'm not, I'm not saying that if you're not a Christian, your life falls apart. I'm saying there is a beauty and there is a mystery in knowing the Lord for who he is. And it has given me life and I want it to give my children life. And I would imagine that parents in the room feel the same way as I do about that. 
But the amazing thing about this mystery is that they didn't set Jesus up to learn who his heavenly father was. It's possible that they gave him the talk. Can you imagine giving Jesus the sex talk? It's probably one of the most complicated parent sex talks in history. Because you have to explain the mechanics of sex to a child, and then you immediately have to explain how they don't apply to your child. You have to say, well, normally, when mommy and, mummies and daddies love each other very much, and then you go through the whole explanation, but in this particular case, something very strange happened. So is it possible that Jesus knew that God was his father because Mary and Joseph had told him? Maybe, I don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus found a sense of place in his father's house. He wasn't there showing off. He wasn't there making a good impression. He was there because he was finding his sense of purpose and belonging in relationship to his heavenly father. Here's the, really, the only thing I want to tell you today. Your sense of purpose and belonging do not come from the goals you set or the things you accomplish. They come from abiding in relationship to the people you belong to. Here's the crazy thing about belonging. Belonging is not something you can make for yourself. Belonging is something someone else has to give to you. You're born into a family and you're given a name. You're brought to a home and you're given an environment. This happens on several levels. The ultimate goal for any parent who wants their child to know the Lord is they want their child to feel a sense of belonging in the father's heart and in the father's house. But here Mary and Joseph didn't intentionally do this. They didn't leave him here, there and say, okay, we'll just leave you at the temple. We'll see you in a couple days. You just get to know your real dad for a little bit. No, they did it by accident. They left and he stayed. But I'd like to suggest to you that the reason why the incarnation happened into a family and the reason why Mary and Joseph were picked to be Jesus' parents was that they were prototypes of what spiritual family is supposed to look like. Remember, Jesus is not all about protecting and saving the nuclear family. Jesus is bringing a kingdom that includes a brand new kind of family, which involves different races and tribes, both genders, slave and free. Jesus is creating a new kind of family and a new kind of community around himself. Jesus' mothers and brothers think he's going a little bit off the rails and they say, hey, Jesus, can you come out of the crowd? We'd like to speak to you. And he says, actually, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the will of God and do it. He wasn't meaning to dishonor them. He was simply saying, there is a higher order of family than the one you've been born into. But the reason why Jesus was born into a family was Mary and Joseph were the context of belonging by which he could learn who his heavenly father was not by information, but by love and acceptance and affirmation. See, in the middle of this mystery, even at the end of this story, Mary takes all these things and treasures them in her heart. What you need from a spiritual mother is someone who treasures the word spoken over you more than you do. You don't need a superstar. You don't need a prophetess. You need someone who is going to cherish your destiny more than you do. 
What do you need from a spiritual father? Do you need someone who knows the Bible forwards and backwards? Do you need someone who's a prayer warrior? Do you need someone who intimidates you because they're so spiritual? No, you just need someone who is willing to, at the drop of a hat, change everything to protect you and to protect the destiny God's given you. Joseph's story in the Bible is essentially this. He is willing to lay everything down so that Jesus can have the life God promised. So these simple, ordinary people who end up with this crazy, awesome child almost by accident set him up to know his father and to be in his father's house. But here's where the story gets really interesting. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. The Jewish religion had a strong program for protecting the tenets of its faith. They would take every child and they would educate them in the Torah. And then they would take the best and the brightest and they would continue with those for another few years. And then they'd take the best and the brightest of those and those would continue for another few years until only the select elites were left to carry the law and its customs and to serve in the temple perhaps, but especially to be rabbis in local synagogues. And these all-star students were the cream of the crop. It, it would be as if the public education system was one massive Bible college to set up the premier pastors for the next generation of a nation's life. Jesus goes into that world and he blows everybody away. And then he goes back home to live with a carpenter. You see, a lot of people think if they want to advance in life, they need to look for a mentor who can train them in the thing they want to get good at. Jesus rejects the best possible mentors and chooses to go home and live with a family. When I said earlier that two roads diverge in a wood and I have chosen the one that are less traveled and it has made all the difference. Sometimes I think the heroic choice is not to go from home. Sometimes I think the heroic choice is to stay where there is a home. Remember, Jesus discovers who his father is in the context of a family. And he chooses to come back and remain in subjection to them. And this is a better setup for his life and his ministry and the fulfillment of his destiny than being in the temple with the religious elites. A lot of people are looking to improve themselves, but they haven't discovered that if you stay home in the context where you belong with people who love you and celebrate you and champion your dreams. According to the pattern of Jesus, you have a better chance of fulfilling the reason why you were set out for your purpose than if you try to make something of yourself. If Jesus wanted to make something of himself, I would suggest to you that he would have stayed at the temple 
See, in our modern North American context, we just think, oh yeah, and then he went home with his family. But you have to understand, there was a rabbinical framework by which he could have been mentored and trained and have become one of the greatest rabbis in the history of Judaism. Coincidentally, he did become the greatest rabbi in the history of Judaism, but he didn't do it through their program. He did it by remaining in subjection to the people who gave him a sense of belonging. I see many people, especially in my own generation, who are trying to make something of themselves and trying to make something of their own life. And I understand the call to adventure and it does exist before us, but it is far more courageous to stay where you belong. To st- Let me say this a different way. To stay where you know a sense of belonging. When I say stay where you belong, I don't mean like, you belong here, you belong in your place, get in your corner. That's not the, nobody puts baby in a corner. That's not the kind of belonging I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about the kind of belonging where someone believes in you, protects you, champions you, and, and, and celebrates the dream of your life more than even you do. You will go farther with those people than you will on your own. Because even if you were able to achieve your dreams through your own self-effort, at the end you will have a number of hollow accomplishments and no one to share them with. We have called the theme for this year Formed by the Spirit, and I think it's, it's good for us to realize that we are being formed by the Holy Spirit, that our encounters with the Holy Spirit have a way of shaping us and molding us into the people God has created us to be. There's the old cliche story about Michelangelo, was, I think it was Michelangelo, was asked how he is able to chisel these incredible statues out of marble, and he says, it's easy, I just take away everything that is not the angel hidden in the marble. And that's kind of how God forms us. He takes away from our lives. It's, an, it's a matter of subtraction. It's not that God saves half of you and then slowly works on the other half. <laughs> no, he saves you wholly and completely. He gives you the fullness of his spirit and then we learn and it is revealed to us who we really are and parts and pieces of what we are not are stripped away from us. And this is what the fathers meant when we talked about sanctification or growing in spirituality. And if I was brave, I'd maybe show you the clip, but I'll just have to explain it to you. For me, it's best summarized in the very prophetic movie from 1994, The Lion King. Which, if you skip over the weird African pagan shamanism part, (laughs) I don't even know what he's saying there. I can, it's, I'm not gonna go any further with that. There's a, <laughs> there's a part in the movie where, he, where Simba, the main lion, feels super defeated. And here's the thing. When I was a kid, I watched this movie in an overcrowded theater on my mom's lap, not really understanding it. And now when I go back to it, I just cry for a totally different reason. Because he feels completely defeated, and he knows that his homeland has been destroyed, and he doesn't want to go back to it. And then Rafiki says, come to the water and look at your reflection. And he says, it's just me. And he hits him over the head with the, with the stick, and he goes, look harder. Like that. I I can do that one, right? And as he looks at the reflection in the mirror, who does he see but his father? See, the pattern of life that was established by Jesus, this new kind of family, is that as we voluntarily relate to and submit to 
as Jesus did with Joseph of Nazareth, people who are not necessarily our biological father, but who give us a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose, and they celebrate our dreams. As we do that, we look at our own reflection, and we don't see our own reflection, but we see our heavenly father. So the power and the beauty and the significance of this, of this uh, reflection is that when Paul says, we behold, um, I, I, don't, I don't have time to go there, but he says that we, it's looking at Christ is like beholding him in a mirror. We with unveiled faces behold him in a mirror. What's, what's Paul trying to get at there? He's saying that when we encounter the glory of God, we see ourselves the way God sees us, but as we're looking in the mirror, we see Christ. A mirror doesn't reveal to you who you're going to be in a week from now. A mirror doesn't reveal to you who you're going to be a month from now. A mirror reveals who you are right now. When you encounter God and when you see Christ for who he is, what is revealed to you is who you are in God's eyes. But just like this very strange and ham-fisted metaphor of the Lion King, just like how Simba looks at his reflection and he sees his father, so too do we see our heavenly father, not just revealed in us, but expressed through us. So that when I'm lost in a grocery store and a man who has never met me and hasn't seen my dad since five, he can look at me and he can say, you must be Kendall Schramm's boy because you look just like him. See, here's the power of belonging. Here's the power of being aligned to spiritual family is people can look at your life and they can say, you must be the son, the daughter of your heavenly father because you look just like them. And this sort of of revelation is not given to us through strenuous work and spiritual study. It doesn't come from being like a Pharisee pouring over the scriptures, which is great, by the way. Please, pour over the scriptures. But it comes from remaining in a culture of belonging where you are loved and celebrated and accepted and you move at the speed of family towards your future. The way most people interpret, the way most people interpret the poem, The Road Less Traveled, is they interpret it as a celebration of independence. There were two roads in the wood. I took the road less traveled and it has made all the difference. In reality, Robert Frost wrote that for a friend who was chronically indecisive. And in the middle stanza of the poem, it says that both paths were relatively the same looking. He wrote it for his friend and his friend misread it and rushed off to war and died in combat. See, we live in a world that celebrates independence. It celebrates people who pick themselves up by the bootstraps and make something of themselves. We celebrate these people as though their lives, because they have accomplished things, have amounted to something. And I want to let you know that even if you make your life the way you want it, if you have nobody to share it with, you will be miserable. So when we talk about belonging and when we talk about spiritual family, what we're really talking about is the the purpose and the intent of the church, of this church and of really, I believe, the global church. Because belonging is not something that you can create for yourself, it's something that someone has to give to you, what it means is you have to trust that God, as the psalmist says, places the lonely in families. 
And you have to choose to accept the relationships God has given to you, and you have to keep other people in your heart, and you have to let other people keep you in their heart. And this is the environment by which you grow into the destiny God has prepared for you. Because it no longer comes by ambition and striving. Instead, it comes from the aspiration of being loved and of loving in return. This is why Jesus says in the Gospels, I do everything I do to glorify my Father. He's not in it for himself. He's not trying to make something of himself. He's simply trying to make his Father glorified and celebrated. And the Father is going, I actually want to put the entirety of the universe beneath the feet of my Son. And the Spirit is going, I just want to glorify Jesus And the Trinity exists in this community of love and honor where nobody has to make something of themselves, but rather they glorify and exalt one another. And the beauty and the power of community, of this kind of community, is that when you really belong and when you're really celebrated, you get to go with a family into a future where everything you accomplish is a testament to somebody else's greatness because they were the ones who made you that way. And everything you're really passionate about, everything you really live for, is setting up sons and daughters and brothers and sisters to fulfill their dreams and to see their future happen. I believe this instinct is in every every person. (laughs) I believe it's in everyone who has a mother or a father and everyone who's had a daughter or a son. I think all of us have had a mother and a father. I think we know. I think deep down instinctively we know that the people who love us, the people who know us, the people who care for us, they're not supposed to be sacrificed and left behind. They are the ones who have given their lives to allow us allow ours to happen. <laughs> the other reason why I named the sermon The Road is because there's this book by Cormac McCarthy called The Road. It was also made into a movie, which I haven't seen. So if you've seen the movie and you're like, what? I didn't see it. But I read this book every time my wife and I have a baby because it wrecks me every time. The story is basically a man. That's all he's called, just a man and his boy, who's just called Boy. And they travel through, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but they travel through a post-apocalyptic wasteland trying to survive. And the only thing the father is trying to do is to set his son up for some kind of life. And they see the most horrific things. And the son keeps asking the father, are we like those people? Are we like those ones, these scavengers, these hunters, these cannibals? And the father says, no, no, we're not, because we carry the fire. And you know this isn't going to end very well. (laughs) But in the end of the story, the father lays down his life for his son, and his son is able to continue on. And he meets a new band of travelers, and he says, are you the ones? He's probably eight. He says, are you the ones? Do you carry the fire too? And they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about, but you can come with us and you can be safe. And his son, in turn, leaves his last blanket to cover his father's deceased body, even though it was the only blanket he had. I want you to know that in the road of life, 
the greatest reward is not the things you do or don't do, but it's the people you get to share your life with. And I would like to suggest to you in closing that instead of trying to set this year up to be a series of personal growth items and accomplishments, I would like to suggest to you that a more valuable way would be to ask yourself, who am I supposed to be in relationship with? How can I love them? How can I serve them? How can I make their dreams come true? And I would actually write it down. For a while, when I was growing up, I had the list of 15 names on my wall. (laughs) And I would just pray for them every day. Because I thought to myself, the one thing that I'm here for is to make their life better. (laughs) And to make their dreams come true. And I would just pray for them. And I would just prophesy over them. And I never shared most of this with them. But I did this because I knew that there was something more valuable than me getting to fulfill my dreams. It was me getting to witness them fulfilling their dreams. So, everyone has a sense of family, everyone has a sense of belonging. We need to know the people that we're going to and from Jerusalem with, but we also need to be willing to stay in the temple (laughs) to hear our Heavenly Father's voice. At the end of our lives, we are going to measure our love by the people we got to share our life with. And I would pray that you would be intentional about who you walk this road of life with that you would decide for yourself, these people have given me a sense of belonging, these people have given me a sense of family, and I don't want this to be by accident. I want this to be on purpose. I want this to be the highest priority of my life. (laughs) I have one friend who, his spiritual father loves watching The Voice, and he cannot stand The Voice. Like, if there's any kind of television show that he does not like, it's these reality shows where, you know, they zoom in on the family and it's like, well, I just traveled here from Nebraska and I'm so hoping to be a star. And he just hates them, right? But what ends up happening is every Sunday night, they watch The Voice. So he goes over and he sits with his spiritual father just to get time with him watching The Voice. And I don't think his spiritual father knows that he's not a fan of The Voice, (laughs) but what he is a fan of is getting intentional time together. Even if it's just over television, because he wants his life to be defined by the relationships he shares. Let's not do relationships by accident this year. Let's do them on purpose.